0: Hey y'all, it's Summer, and I want to go to a theme park. But that's not an easy feat from where I live. And the way that today's theme parks have been made less accessible than the urban amusement parks that once existed in the past has a rather long racist history that we're going to talk about today. The book we're discussing is called Race, Riots, and Roller Coasters, The Struggle Over Segregated Recreation in America. And my guest is Professor Victoria W. Wolcott of University of Buffalo. We'll get to why theme parks that are pretty inaccessible from cities now dominate. But before that, the issue at the center of the book is that recreation in America was once segregated and that it took a lot of work to get those desegregated. So I just want to open with the question why pools, roller rinks and amusement parks are an important facet of American history to talk about.
1: Yeah, thank you for the question. And thank you for inviting me. So these are all forms of, you know, both public and commercial amusements. And they really emerged in the United States in the late 19th century, like the 1890s. And there was actually a big roller skating uh, craze in the 1890s. But that's also the time period in which, you know, what was called at the time, the quote unquote, color line, right, that segregation became codified with the Plessy v. Ferguson decision, but also even outside of the South, you have these commercial amusements, you know, emerging at the same time that racial divisions were really at their most stark in many ways. In Southern states, you do have like white only signs and what was often, you know, we think of as de jure segregation by law, but this segregation policies were actually national in scope. And there's a number of reasons that were given to justify the segregation. For the commercial amusements, things like theme parks, for example, the people who were owning and marketing these, these parks, they're actually amusement parks, it's before theme parks, talked about them as being like, quote unquote, safe spaces or clean spaces. And because of racial stereotypes and discrimination, those kinds of characteristics were associated with whiteness. So because they were marketed as clean and safe and family, you know, spaces, these owners of these facilities felt that they had to keep African Americans out completely. So Coney Island, that was the case for many, many decades. That's one, you know, example that it's particularly prominent when it comes to swimming pools. There's also issues again around racial stereotypes about things like cleanliness and also sexuality, right? Because if you're swimming at a beach or a pool, You're wearing a bathing suit, and there's a kind of sexual titillation there. So there's a lot of concerns about keeping whites and blacks separate because of the concern of that kind of racial mixing. So there's a number of justifications that go into the solidification of segregated amusement parks and other forms of recreation. But it's really that turn of the last century that that happens.
0: North-South, it being nationwide was something that you talk about a lot in the book, the way we tell history is kind of always that like the South was terrible. It had like segregation laws, but actually, one thing you put out in the book is that city amusement parks were actually more of a northern thing, and yep. segregation was a thing in recreation in the north and in the South,
1: yeah, that's right. I mean, we like to think of you know the South is evil, the north is good, underground railroad, all of that that really obscures the actual history. So the kinds of means of segregation were a little bit different outside of the South. And one of the primary ways in which these spaces were segregated was actually through violence. When you do have particularly, say, African-American families who are migrating to cities like Chicago or... Detroit or Buffalo from the South. And they sometimes assumed they could go to these spaces. And so they would try to do so. And they were kept out by either guards or sometimes just by white teenagers or or young, you know, young white men who would beat them up. Right. And this helped to kind of justify keeping African-Americans out of those spaces because, you know, the, the owners would say, well, this causes problems. It causes violence. It causes conflict. So that white racial violence was actually used as a justification for segregation. For these older amusement parks, a lot of them would have special days where African-Americans could visit Usually that was a Monday, right? Because that was a day where you had less business. It was a way to guarantee that they got some business. Some of the parks also would have sometimes just one day or one weekend a year where they would open the parks to African-Americans. And then some parks had this sort of situation where if you were African-American, you might be able to get into the amusement park. This is true in, in Euclid Beach Park outside of Cleveland but you couldn't go to certain facilities within it. So swimming pools were segregated within the park. Dance halls were segregated because of the, again, the interracial mixing problem, right? And roller skating rinks were segregated in the park. So maybe you could go on some rides if you're African-American, but you couldn't have access to those spaces within the park. So it's a pretty complicated geography of segregation, but it is pervasive and it is national.
0: Something you just said was that in the North or even just in general, black people didn't always know that they weren't allowed in these parks because there wouldn't be like an overt, there wouldn't always be like a white only side. Sometimes they would show up and be turned away. And that's actually the basis for a lot of the desegregation efforts would be a black family. Some black students would just want to enjoy recreational facilities because like, why would you not? They're fun. And when they got there, they'd be turned away. And that will be the basis of like a lawsuit.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And some of those stories are just heartbreaking, especially of the mothers coming with their children, just trying to, you know, do something fun with their kids. These places are advertised, you know, they're public accommodations. Some people who were turned away or, or you know, suffered, you know, other kinds of hostility, racial epithets, that kind of thing. They would go to the to the NAACP. I looked at the NAACP papers, of course, and Library of Congress, and there are all these boxes of letters and other complaints, right, from from Black families. Again, really heartbreaking. Uh, And the NAACP took some of those cases, didn't take others, but they did try to enforce the civil rights laws that were on the books. So, A lot of these northern states, New York State, Illinois, had civil rights laws, state laws from the 19th century, but they just weren't enforced. So often, what would happen with these legal cases is they would, the judge would have a very small fine um, that the owner of the rank or whatever it was had to pay, or sometimes judges would allow that particular individual or that small group of people access, right? But not open up the access for everyone. So it was really clear by the 1940s that it was going to take a more sustained effort to actually carry out these desegregation campaigns. And that's the period where you start to have nonviolent direct action. And that starts to actually begin to work, where the Congress of Racial Equality is the, the most important civil rights group here, but there are other ones as well, where they start using direct action techniques to basically do sit-ins or skate-ins when they went to roller skating rinks, right, or blocking entrance and doing this, you know, through nonviolent training. And that begins to raise the visibility of this segregation uh, and kind of push the campaign forward. Yeah. Can we talk about a specific one of those cases? Yeah, sure. So um, one is a Palisades amusement park. That was in New Jersey. It was right across from Manhattan. It's a northern state, right? It actually had some civil rights laws on the books, but Palisades was uh, segregated. So I believe it's 1947 that the Congress of Racial Equality, you know, they began to do these series of sit-ins uh, in front of Palisades and they get beat up. They get arrested they get beat up both by cops, but also by just, again, white bystanders, right? Kind of these white toughs who are using violence to maintain this as a white-only space, which is really common. But they managed to get a fair amount of publicity and a, a lot of attention towards this campaign. And the state of New Jersey actually passes, in, in the wake of this protest, a, a stronger Civil Rights Act called the Freeman Civil Rights Act, And in direct response to the civil rights activity, and Palisades Park is forced to open up its gates, right, to African-Americans. They still suffered some, it took them a longer period of time to get um, access to the swimming pool. Again, swimming pools are particularly well guarded uh, in many ways. And there's definitely African-Americans who, when they finally got in the gates, you know, still faced a lot of racial hostility. But that's a good example of a pretty early successful campaign. And then you start to see this, you know, snowball through the 50s and of course into the 1960s as well
0: yeah and part of what's super interesting or important i guess what your book highlights that isn't often highlighted is that both that this movement started so early that like in the 40s people were out attempting desegregation efforts Mm -hmm. and that there was violence against this yeah there's there's a whole lot of aspects of the civil rights movement that we associate with like peaceful protest and violent reaction, but that was part of even desegregating amusement parks and pools. Wasn't there a part of the book where you said in response to one action, there were hoses?
1: Oh yeah. That was, that happened more, more than once. Right. Right. Northern people, Northern, you know, police officers or guards using these Southern, you know, tactics against protesters. But I think that's one of the things I most want people to take away is that when many Americans, particularly when many white Americans, think about uh, the term race riots, right, they associate that with the uprisings and racial rebellions of the late 1960s. Watts, you know, those those major major uprisings. But in fact, the race riots in the 20th century, the majority of those are riot behavior on the part of whites. So you have, you know, a slew of race riots that happen in 1919 and into the early 1920s, some of those about recreation actually. And that's not about African Americans versus police officers or national guard, that's about white urban residents who are going into Black communities and and attacking people. mean think about something like Tulsa, for example, the wholesale destruction of a Black community. And then on a smaller scale, you have the sort of ongoing white racial violence to try to maintain segregation all throughout the 20th century And that's something that I think has been largely forgotten or downplayed in in people's memories. There's a lot of nostalgia for, for, you know, particularly amusement parks and things like that, without a recognition of how important that role was of white racial violence and how much, you know, strength, courage it took for African-Americans to stand up to it as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. One thing I really thought was interesting was the way that you reframe the Chicago race riot of 1919. It's definitely like a race riot that comes up a lot, being about housing segregation, really, a lot as the central issue. But I guess I never even thought about it. The reason why the riot starts around a black kid floating into a white only beach, which I never even thought about the fact that there were white only beaches in Chicago.
1: I know. And there were white only beaches in Chicago into the 1960s, which is really striking. But yeah, so it's a, it's a tragic story. You know, there's there's a black beach and a white beach. They're close to each other uh, on the shores of the lake there in Chicago. And this African-American boy, he's on a, like a log. So he's floating and he floats over to where the white beach is. And a group of white guys are throwing rocks and they hit him in the head and he drowns. And that's the the instigating action for, you know, what happens. What happens on the beach then is there's a rumor among the white beachgoers that African Americans are going to attack them in revenge, right? This all happens very quickly, these rumors. And so they are proactive and they attack, they begin to attack African Americans there was a lot of tension in the city because this is the end of World War One. So there were tensions around housing and labor, no question. But a lot of this tension was also around public spaces, public parks, public beaches, right? And black migrants standing up for themselves, trying to get access to these spaces and encountering an enormous amount of violence in response. And this happens in Chicago, you know, it continues to happen throughout the 20th century uh, into the 1960s.
0: Yeah, you even talk about the day that the riots started. Like earlier that day, a group of Black adults had tried to do one of those stand-ins on a beach, on a white beach. Like this was kind of a culmination of a lot of efforts to integrate.
1: Yeah, this is pre the sort of nonviolent, Gandhian, you know, nonviolent stuff. But absolutely, I mean, think about uh, Black politics in Chicago during this great migration era. Um, Chicago was a city that was like rich with political movements, Garveyism, you know, other other movements within the African-American community. So there is a lot of pushback. Um, and again, thinking about African-American migrants from the Deep South, you know, reading about Chicago as this mecca of freedom in newspapers like, like the Chicago Defender, and then arriving into a city that was so deeply segregated. So there were absolutely challenges uh, to that segregation and also attempts, and this is an important part of the story, too, to create either public parks. Or other kinds of recreational spaces for the black community, you know. So it's not so much that they wanted to swim with white people, right? They just wanted they wanted access to spaces that were equal, where they felt safe and where they could have, you know, baseball games and other forms of recreation. Um, so that that was a lot of what what they were really working for. Yeah,
0: there was. I guess still in Chicago, there was a part of your book where you talked about Jackson Park Beach was technically was a white beach, and knowing the geography of Chicago, Jackson Park is definitely near where Black people live in Chicago, which really highlights that point of like Black people just wanted to be if they're living in a city, they wanted to be able to enjoy all facets of the city, right? Because yeah, when you start segregating. Places like beaches, public pools, even like roller skating rinks and bowling alleys. These are places that part of just like the right of living in a city is the right to go to public places and use them.
1: Right. Especially if your, your tax money is going to build these accommodations, you know, for like during the 1930s, there was a lot of investment in parks and swimming pools and so forth built with New Deal money. And so African-Americans were saying that's our tax Money, Right. I mean, going to build these these segregated facilities. So there was a lot of, you know, anger over that. But those spaces in cities, I mean, it's what allows people to enjoy, as you're suggesting, to enjoy a city and to make a city more livable. Um, having, you know, parks that are open, again, safe, where you can picnic, where you can engage in recreation, especially in an industrial city like Chicago, is absolutely essential so that's one of the reasons why it becomes a a major priority for many of these of these urban citizens but i can talk a little bit about i mean i know you're interested in the theme park so one of the things that's so interesting is that the theme park which is really developed by walt disney uh what walt disney does is he goes around and he looks at all these older amusement parks which were you know available. You could get to them through public transportation, right? Um, Think about Coney Island in New York City. You can get there on subway. Um, Other ones are at the end of trolley lines. So you can get to them by public transportation. And they have, you know, roller skating rinks and dance halls and these different things within them. So Walt Disney goes around and he looks at all these different amusement parks And he comes up with this plan for a theme park that he is designing partly to avoid the kind of racial conflict and racial violence that was emerging by the 30s and 40s and beyond um, in these parks. So Disney World in California, there is no roller skating rink. It is not on a beach. There is no swimming facilities. There's no ballrooms or dance halls, right? So all those spaces where there was a lot of conflict within them around kind of racial issues, he also puts it in the suburb where it's very difficult to get to unless you have a car. There's no public transportation to get there. There is now, but there wasn't in the 1950s. So that's really important. He spatially isolates it from the city as well. And the other thing he does, which is then copied by many, many other places, is he institutes a gate fee. So in older amusement parks... If you were a teenager, you could, you know, show up at an amusement park with not very much money, there's no gate fee, and then you would buy ride tickets, right? You could spend money on ride tickets or on games, but it was free to actually get into the park. And so what Disney does is he sets up this gate fee system where you have to pay a lot of money in order even to get access to the park. So he doesn't have to make the park racially segregated, um, given all these kind of things that he does. And then theme parks around the country copy this. And the surviving older amusement parks also start instituting gate fees and cutting off public transportation to try to prevent this kind of, you know, conflict that was happening.
0: Yeah. I guess two things. One, Cedar Point, the like theme park of my childhood. It had to be like a day trip in my family because we had to drive hours to get there. It wasn't close to any city, and it was intentional. It was kind of part of like white flight out of cities. Was like, okay, y'all gonna have the cities, you would have all the pools and stuff you fought for, and we're gonna go out to the suburbs with like amusement parks that are harder to get to, more expensive.
1: Right. And also, and privatization is also really important. So now getting kind of more into the 1960s and 70s, particularly the post the 1964 Civil Rights Act, what you start to see is a lot of backyard swimming pools, kind of privatization of swimming in people's own homes, or even just like the backyard little, you know, play set and stuff, right? So a disinvestment in public spaces, public swimming pools, even things like playgrounds, all that kind of stuff. There's a disinvestment in that, and, and you see more and more privatization. So like the pool I went to when I was a kid growing up in New Jersey, they had this membership fee, And it was like really super cheap. It was like five dollars for the summer. But it was a they have the pool set up as a private club where you had to pay a membership fee. And that was a way to skirt the Civil Rights Act.
0: Because requiring membership could very easily become not allowing black people to be members.
1: So that's what pools did all over the place is they privatized and made them, you know, have these stupid, you know, membership. And I'm sure people will remember this who are a little bit older, but you still see that today. A rise in gated communities where, you know, you have places like Florida, which is filled with gated communities, California too, where all the recreational spaces are within this gated community. And so anybody who seems to be outside of that community the obvious example here is Trayvon Martin, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons why he was attacked by by Zimmerman was he was in a gated community and perceived as somebody who should not be there. Uh, so that that's another kind of trend that you see in the late 20th century is a, dis, a disinvestment in the public, you know, recreation and privatization that happens.
0: Yeah, that's a whole, like, phase in your book is kind of like a we can't have it for ourselves no one gets it and just closing things
1: it's like a zero sum situation. And and the, the tragedy is that that doesn't just impact African-Americans, but all working class people who live in cities, immigrants, you know, Latinx, you know, working class whites, you know, there's, there's less and less available in urban areas. And there's all sorts of sociological research showing that having, you know, robust public recreation leads to a decrease in, in gun violence Criminal activity, et cetera, because kids have something to do and some place to go that's safe and where they can feel welcome. I mean, right now there's a crisis in swimming pools because there's not enough lifeguards. So, this has been in the news a fair amount. There's no public swimming pools open in my city of Buffalo. There are in the suburbs, but not in the city this summer. And I know New York City has significantly reduced how much uh, swimming pools they have because they don't have enough lifeguards. And Unfortunately, the result of that is, you know, it's very dangerous to swim in natural waters and rivers and stuff around here because we have Niagara Falls and we've had repeated incidents of poor kids, immigrant kids, refugee kids drowning because they're jumping in what looks like safe water and it's not. And they don't know how to swim well. So there's, you know, there can be really tragic consequences of not having this.
0: Yeah, it comes with... I was actually about to say that I wanted to step back and focus on pools because that was one of the issues. It wasn't even just like the right to use the pool. It was kind of the right to learn how to swim. There were multiple instances in the book where there was the one, there was a Chicago riot where the kid drowned. But there were times when a kid would want to use a pool, it would try to like jump into a white pool and would drown. Because part of the whole separating pools was that black kids often didn't learn how to swim. It wasn't a thing they learned in schools because of segregation also. So it, did. it was the right to even have that like survival skill of being able to swim.
1: Yeah, so the rates of drowning among young African-American children was significantly higher because of that. And you're absolutely right about the schools. So the really well-appointed white schools, like the white high schools, all had swimming pools. And post-Brown, when you do have some desegregation, those swimming pools are shut down. Because once you have high schoolers who are African-American now beginning to attend these big older high schools, they shut down the swimming pools and they don't teach them how to swim because of this fear, again, these, this deep-seated racial stereotype that that went on. So that was shut down. The Y system, I mean, a lot of kids learned to swim at the Y. The Ys were segregated. They were nominally desegregated in the late 1940s, but Many of them remain segregated after that, and black ys did not have swimming pools often, so the only way to learn how to swim would you 'd have to go to the the white y so there 's this very, very long legacy around swimming, around who gets to learn how to swim and who doesn't. And it's had generational consequences. I mean, I know, you know, there, there are certainly groups, I know there's a group here in Buffalo, where they're actually teaching adults to swim as part of kind of trying to as a kind of reparations, in a sense, to try to give them those skills, you know, later in life, but it's dangerous. It's very dangerous, because if particularly, you know, In places that are very hot, like the South, you know, kids are going to try to, they're going to jump in a pond, they're going to jump in, you know, they're, they're hot. That was and continues to be very dangerous.
0: I want to take just like a quick detour into bowling, because I didn't realize that the American Bowling Congress didn't allow Black members for a long time.
1: But yeah, they supported segregated bowling alleys. And this isn't even, so bowling, it's a great example, because, you know, on the one hand, although obviously these stereotypes are deeply disturbing and completely wrong headed but you can sort of see how dancing together swimming together might be particularly problematic for white supremacist ideology bowling seems less so and yet that too was a segregated space there was huge conflicts over over bowling and I think part of that is the whole idea of like when you're engaging in recreation, you're kind of letting your hair down, you're relaxed, and that there was a lot of anxiety around being that kind of relaxed and letting your hair down in a mixed group. That was part of what they were sort of thinking. But actually, what ends up breaking some of the bowling segregation, at least outside of the South, it persists in the South for until the Civil Rights Act, is labor. So unions, if you're in a union, right? Middle of the 20th century, unions were much more significant. If you're in a union, you know, you're going to go bowling, right? It's a working class activity. So when you had the Congress of Industrial Organizations form in the 1930s, they actually worked really hard to recruit African American workers into the union. And they wanted these black and white workers to be able to recreate together. So they tried to go to a bowling alley. And they wouldn't be able to do it. So it was actually the union who really pushed against that segregation. And a lot of the alleys desegregated as a result of that. So it sort of shows you how organized labor can be a force for desegregation in that period. Again, some places, you know, um, there's a famous thing in, in Orangeburg, South Carolina, a bowling alley that refused to desegregate after the Civil Rights Act. So so in some cases, it took much longer. But it is pretty remarkable. Yeah. <laughs>
0: You mentioned the Civil Rights Act, and I guess before we get there, these efforts took decades because recreational facilities existed in most major cities, there were multiple of them, and along the way towards the Civil Rights Act, there were just constant efforts. There were the kind of sit-ins you were talking about where Black people would be like, if no one, if we can't get in, no one gets in, trying to take their revenue away, there would be boycotts, there would be these lawsuits, and that was decades and picked up by the civil rights movement, that the nonviolent direct action that we associate with the civil rights movement started decades before in amusement parks, roller rinks, pools.
1: Yeah, I mean, and the Civil Rights Act is interesting because I think there is some assumption that you pass the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and that this problem is solved, right? And that's not really how it works. In many cases, it takes a very, very long time, like into the 1970s, through lawsuits, through, you know, more campaigns uh, to actually make this come to pass to to some extent, desegregation of public accommodations. So there's both an incredibly long struggle to get up to the Civil Rights Act that is passed. There is you know, a title in the Civil Rights Act that says that public accommodations have to be desegregated. But then what gets defined as a public accommodation becomes tricky. And it's like you have to serve you know, food or what if a place doesn't serve food? Does it advertise? Does it not advertise? And I mentioned before that privatization was one of the major ways to resist the Civil Rights Act. There's even a, a couple of cases of entire amusement parks that try to privatize. And there's lawsuits that challenge that but it's not that hard to privatize. You just you stop advertising and you set up your facility as a club, a membership-only club, and then you're exempt from the Civil Rights Act. So there's that. And then there's a wholesale closing of public accommodations. So that's that's true really throughout the country, particularly in the South, but elsewhere as well, where particularly like public pools just shut down completely and they're cemented over. And so you have a just a decline for everybody in those forms of a public accommodation. So there's, you know, a very long-term impact, which continues into today, about that reaction against the Civil Rights Act. And again, it took a very long period of struggle to kind of ha- make it settled law. It was not like it was passed and everything was okay after that.
0: So you were talking about how, what of the reasons amusement parks and I guess recreational facilities sold themselves as safe because they were white only. And desegregation efforts immediately led to an association of city amusement parks as unsafe, unclean, because they allowed Black people in.
1: Yeah, and that turned out to be a false narrative. Surprise, surprise. So one really good example of that is Riverview Park. This is in Chicago. And Riverview Park, after it finally really desegregated, really in the early 60s, got a sort of reputation in the white media that maybe from white suburbanites as being dangerous. But I actually looked to see, you know, if there was increase in criminal activity or increase and there wasn't. Right. So it was perceived as dangerous because there was now African-Americans, you know, in the park. But there isn't actually much evidence it was dangerous or more dangerous than it had been. What was happening, though, is that these urban amusement park, the owners began to disinvest in the park. So they didn't do the upkeep, you know, the paint jobs, the keeping things going, all that kind of stuff. And they did that deliberately because the land was incredibly valuable. And so they kind of let these parks decline. You see this in Coney Island too. They let the parks decline. The parks start to get this sort of reputation. And then they are able to then sell that land. To real estate developers at a, at a pretty nice profit for themselves so this happens in Chicago happens in Newark New Jersey it happens all over the place and I should say in terms of kind of questions of violence you know there's plenty of evidence of ethnic kind of clashes at these older amusement parks so African Americans were excluded, but you know you have the Irish gangs who are fighting the Italian gangs, who are fighting the Polish gangs in this park. So this idea that this space has to be safe because it's white only actually turns out not to be the case, which is sort of interesting as well. So the decline and the closing of the urban amusement parks, it gets blamed on African Americans. But in fact, what was happening is this disinvestment in those places uh, by the owners who were then closing them and selling them. So they were using this as, as justification for closing the parks, which is really, you know, really sad, actually. I mean, sometimes some of them would try to, like, cut off public transportation for a while and see if that helped. But usually there's there's very few of these older parks that still exist today.
0: Yeah. Even one of the ones that survived a long time, Bob Lowe in Detroit is now that that's been sold and is now covered in mansions.
1: Yeah. Bobo Island is a really interesting story. There's um, a famous incident, uh, a young African-American woman, Sarah Elizabeth Ray, I believe her name is in the 1940s. She had graduated as I believe like a nursing school or something like that. Right. And I think she was the only black student and they were going to go to Bobo Island on an excursion. So they all go to buy tickets at the boat to get to the island, and she's refused. And she goes to the NAACP, and that becomes a major Supreme Court case, actually, that helps to kind of push desegregation along. So that's a really good example. You know, by the time you get into the 60s, it's pretty much desegregated, but it has the same sort of trajectory as as most of these other places do. Still lots of theme parks still around, but very expensive and hard to get to.
0: Yeah, that's still... The legacy of, I guess, Colorblind
1: the theme part is this
0: idea yeah. of, like, anyone can come in, just get here and pay a whole lot of money for your whole thing. Because, yeah, especially if you're trying to do the thing as a family, you got to pay for all the family to get in.
1: It's more it's more of a class segregation there was some stuff that happened like in the eighties and nineties around like clothing, right? There's this sort of sort of panic around gangs, so that if you wore certain kinds of clothing, you could be excluded. So there there was some pushback there. One of the things that happened a few years ago is the Six Flags theme parks. They were called six flags because it started in Texas. You know, so they flew the six flags of Texas, and one of those was the Confederate flag. And so it's only I think it's like seven years ago that they finally like completely erased that legacy of the Confederate flag as part of the theme park. So you can imagine like that's a little bit of a signal for folks who are trying to go to this theme park. They would also, the early Six Flag parks in, in Texas would do reenactments of like Civil War stuff, kind of pro-Confederate ones. So again, there's lots of ways to signal racial exclusion without, again, a, a whites-only sign.
0: Oh, Delinquency. We should probably spend a little time on that.
1: In the 50s, there was a a riot that happened near uh, Buffalo, actually, around this. That kind of white violence I was talking about, the white teenagers and sometimes, you know, young 20-year-olds, whatever, guys mostly, but not always, beating up, you know, African-American families that are trying to go to these places. That gets dismissed as juvenile delinquency. You know, oh, they're just juvenile delinquents, not not like white supremacy or white racial violence or discriminations. Oh, it's just juvenile delinquency. And so there is a way in which that narrative just sort of dismisses what's actually happening on the ground in these conflicts. As the challenges become increasingly strident and significant and the backlash against those challenges, that just gets dismissed as teenagers being teenagers. But it was much more than that. Yeah.
0: Then after, after Black kids are allowed in, it's suddenly like, these places are bad and we have to leave now.
1: Right. So the, the white juvenile delinquent, then there's a new narrative, which is like the Black gang member that kind of emerges really as early as the mid-60s and then flourishes in the last few decades of the 20th century, that they're super, super dangerous with this erasure of the kind of violence that happened previous.
0: In your book, you talk about a lot of the justification to halt desegregation efforts was like... Oh no! There will be violence. The threat of like, if white people and black people are forced to be in the safe space, there's going to be violence.
1: It's a circular argument. It's so it's so incredible. So you have these white teenagers who are beating people up when there's some small effort at desegregation, and then immediately judges, mayors, you know, public officials are like, "Oh, we have to slow down. This has to be much more gradual because we need." So it's it segregation becomes violence prevention. And so it's a very effective tactic, white violence, actually, for keeping these spaces white only. So there's like, let's do it super gradually. You know, let's have, you know, social workers out there. And then you have civil rights activists who are like, no, no, not gradual. We're just going to go and we're going to try to challenge it. Yeah. So I always try to pay attention to instances even today where violence prevention becomes a justification for essentially discrimination.
0: There's still clearly a way of associating, like, this is a white space, so it's safe. And then an intrusion of non-white people, suddenly it's not as safe. It's not as good as it used to be.
1: Yeah. The um, recognition of the legacy of this history, you know, we don't have segregation laws on the books anymore. The Civil Rights Act has been, you know, enforced in many ways in terms of public accommodations. But there is still this way in which African-Americans who are in spaces that are considered white spaces can be considered to be suspect, right? So the African-American bird watcher in Central Park is a good example of that. Most tragically, Trayvon Martin and some of the other killings that have happened over the years. There was an incident a few years ago, I think it was Philadelphia, a couple of black guys in a Starbucks, they call the police, right? So, That's the longer legacy of segregation. It's not as though we don't still live. I mean, obviously, we have tremendous housing segregation and school segregation as well. But even in the realm of public accommodations and public spaces, there is still this legacy, which is why I think the history is really important to understand.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like that even leads to like the way that like gentrification is like when white people are moving somewhere, they have to push non-white people out because for it to be considered safe, you got to push. All the non-white people out, it's a deliberate narrative of if we keep things segregated, they will be safe.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and right now, there's all this hysteria about a crime waves and so forth. And so it just gets reinforced and reinforced, you know, over and over again.
0: Yeah. Essentially, in these cases, it's just like if white people say no loudly enough and reinforce their no's with like fists, then, well, I guess, I guess no. That's just the answer.
1: Yep. It's very effective, unfortunately.
0: So, yeah, (laughs) that's why the closest amusement park to me is in another state.
1: Oh, God, that's sad. Like, imagine just like hopping on a streetcar, going to the end of the line and being able to go to a park which doesn't have a gate fee, you know, and spend the day there. That was, you know, what it used to be for a certain segment of the population.
0: Yeah, that's the other part. It. It's not like, let's be nostalgic for these good old days of great parks. We have to acknowledge that the reason why that nostalgia can be felt is at the cost of, on the other side, Black people are like, man, we couldn't get into those parks. We got to see that they looked great, but they weren't for us.
1: Absolutely. I mean, so, you know, in Letter from Birmingham Jail, where I start my book, Martin Luther King talks about his daughter Yolanda looking through the gates at Funtown that she can't go to. And you see this in a lot of um, memoirs that I've read of civil rights activists. Their first experience of segregation is often about a swimming pool or amusement park they can't go to as kids. And that sort of sets them up for a lifetime of activism. Thank you so much for coming on my show, Professor. You're welcome, Brooklyn. It was a lot of fun talking to you. I really enjoyed it.
0: I haven't forgotten about doing an episode about how Roe v. Wade fits into Black women's history. That's coming. But until then, y'all know what to do. If you like this show or this episode, tell people about it. It's the best thing you can do for the show. Also, you know, follow me on social media and all power to all people, y'all.